welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I want to start by asking you what comes to mind when you hear the word hospitality. Maybe an experience uh, you once had at a hotel or at a resort. Maybe a feeling you once had in a home where you lived or in a home you visited. Or maybe when you hear hospitality, what comes to mind is an experience of extreme anti-hospitality. That's what the word for the past 45 or so years has triggered in me. I've talked about this poor guy before, but Dr. Zold was my middle school principal. Not Mr. Zold, Dr. Zold. And one time I got called out of class to go to Dr. Zold's office. Now, Dr. Zold was a fast walker and a fast talker. He walked and talked at right angles. Everywhere he went, there was a darting and a sharp turn. He was kind of a crispy and crunchy dude, if you want to think of him that way. No wasted movements, no inexactitude. Every pencil sharpened like a spear. Every scrap of paper lying in formation inside of its assigned folder. Every breath and step of Dr. Zold was taut and tight and scheduled down to the microsecond. No monkey business, no wasted time. I imagine his calendar entry every day at 2.12 in the afternoon, put feet on desk and lean back in chair. Then at 2.15, return feet to flat on the floor. Dr. Zold purposefully ricocheted from one task to the next. When he got around this guy, he never felt like he was fully present right where he was. He was always kind of rifling through the agenda in his mind, ready to goose step to his next appointment. Dr. Zold created a middle school culture. We might summarize this way. Do what I say or I will throw you into the dungeon. And we were scared of him. Uh, Maybe everybody is scared of their middle school principal, but we were scared of Dr. Zold, which is the culture I believe he wanted. So when I was called out of class that fateful day so many years ago and began slowly shuffling down the hallway to his office, I felt literally like a dead man walking. And when I entered into the space, you know, his office is in the back and there's this front area, but the whole area felt like a warden's office smelled like formaldehyde. Just this kind of death was in the air. I go into his office. He sat behind this big fortress desk. His starched white shirt could stand at attention with no one wearing it. His tie was just yanked up as tight as he could get it like a hangman's noose. I sat down in this bony wooden chair and I was sure there were nails poking up through the seat. And Dr. Zold, as soon as I sat down, he launched into this rapid-fire monologue, presumably to recoup the three and a half seconds we had lost on my slow stroll to my execution. Well, it turned out I had been summoned because my grades were excellent. (laughs) And he wanted to give me a lollipop for my achievement. And I remember he grabbed this bucket of lollipops behind him And he shoved it at me and he ordered me, take one. Then he kind of barked out congratulations and he sprung out from behind his desk and he hurried me to the door. It must have been 2.12 in the afternoon. Time for the feet to go up on the desk. 
kind of walked back to my class really relieved, looking at the lollipop, thinking, I, I got a feeling there's strychnine on this thing. But never in my life, before or since, has an affirmation felt more like a condemnation. I feel bad about talking about Dr. Zold in this way. I'm sure in other settings he was a good man, good father, good grandfather, but he created a culture of fear and unwelcome at McKinley Junior High School circa 1978, and it left such a mark. I still remember it. I'm still talking about it. And when I think of a culture of hospitality, unfortunately, I think of Dr. Zold and the compound he was presiding over. And that's the power of hospitality, or in his case, of anti-hospitality. Now, I think we generally, when we hear the word hospitality, we generally think of a multi-gazillion dollar industry where restaurants and hotels and resorts compete with each other by orienting their energies around our satisfaction, all for a price. So we go to a restaurant, for example, and we pay people to be hospitable to us in order to make our experience there as enjoyable as possible. And if the experience sufficiently satisfies, we might come back as a repeat customer, but if the experience is less than what we wanted or think we paid for, then next time we just might try the place up the street. And this way, this aura, this value is so embedded in us, it's like water to a fish. So regarding hospitality, we have, each and every one of us, been conditioned throughout our lives to think in terms of what we might call transactional consumerism. We pay, and the restaurant or hotel or resort provides. And then we evaluate whether what we paid for was worth what we received. And this is our world. This is the kind of cultural context you and I are in 98% of the time. We're saturated in a transactional and consumeristic culture, and it's really hard to flip a switch and decide we're going to set this arrangement aside or to decide in some setting we're going to approach this with different lenses. We're in this kind of transactional consumeristic culture 98% of the time and it leaves its mark on us. But it is one thing for Olive Garden or Ford or Disneyland to compete for our dollars and our devotion. I mean, their business is our satisfaction. But it is quite another thing when transactional consumerism leaks into settings and situations that do not inherently exist for the satisfaction of consumers. There aren't many of them, but there are a few venues that don't actually exist for the satisfaction of consumers. High school, for example. You could pick any school, but Take high school, for example. High school does not exist and was not created to satisfy those who attend it. High school was designed right from the beginning to provide an education for young people, but you and I know these days this transactional consumer mindset has altered how students and parents think about elementary, middle, or high school. This transactional Consumerism also alters how we think about church. Ponder it for a second. The church's business, when it all started, was never intended 
to orient around the satisfaction of consumers because themes like dying to self are central in the Christian message and a tad bit different from oriented around self. And yet, you know as I do, transactional consumerism runs rampant in the North American church. So the what's in it for me and for us mindset is alive and well in Jesus' church, even though Jesus' church was never intended to be oriented around what's in it for me or what's in it for us. And as always, the beautiful way of Jesus and the beautiful way of his kingdom cuts against the grain of these kinds of embedded cultural values and practices. So today, we are beginning a three-week series called Restoring Hospitality. Restoring the biblical idea of hospitality and, hopefully, restoring the human soul through biblical hospitality. So if you would stand for our scripture reading, it comes today from Hebrews chapter 13. Actually, all three weeks of this series, this is the passage we're going to be reading. This is the passage we're going to be using. Just these three verses in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, page 1,214. The writer says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, as the video said, the heart of Christian hospitality is this idea of welcoming strangers, welcoming others, particularly those who are outsiders. So Christian hospitality is an open-armed welcome to those on the outside, like, and she said this, like the poor, the prisoner, the homeless, the vulnerable, the forgotten. The hurting. It says right into the face of those who are strangers or those who are on the outside, Christian hospitality says, We welcome you. You belong with us and you are one of us. And this welcoming is offered with no strings attached and no concern for payback. So rather than think of hospitality as a multi-gazillion dollar industry, the Bible describes hospitality as a kind of posture toward other people, a spiritual practice, if you will. In the Bible, hospitality is an expression of authentic Christianity, or put it this way, it is the gospel embedded and played out in a relational context. Where the kingdom of God is breaking out then, where the reign and rule of God are expanding, hospitality will be happening. Radical welcome will be offered. And so this is our focus over the next few weeks, becoming hospitable people that welcome and make room for strangers and for others and for those on the outside. And especially this, these weeks, to narrow it down a little bit more, becoming a hospitable church community that welcomes and makes room for strangers, for others, for those on the outside. Being people, being a church community 
that creates a culture of hospitality. Let's begin by talking briefly about the foundation of Christian hospitality. Where does this come from? Why does this matter? The underlying theology that inspires hospitality, it's hard to say, hospitality is the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, a community of divine love, a perfect community of love, unity, joy, and relationship where nothing was lacking and nothing was needed. The Trinity, a community of perfect divine love. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had a pretty good thing going on when it was just the three of them. And it's really important for us to get this and to see how this moves The father wasn't sitting around one day at 2.15 in the afternoon with his feet up on his desk saying, you know, guys, this is great, but something is missing in our little community. Nothing was missing in their little community. Perfect love, perfect submission, complete joy, complete unity. But, and this is the key, at the very heart of God himself, is the desire for others to experience this exquisite goodness. So the father said, this is beautiful. Let's create others and invite them to share this beauty with us. This is precisely what Jesus prays for in John chapter 17 as he looks down the corridors of history and prays for those who will follow him by saying in John 17, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And here's the key thing. May they also be in us. This is at the heart of the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Verses 19 through 20, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And rightfully, we take this sometimes and say, we got to go out and we make disciples and we dunk them in the water. Then we bang them upside the head with the Bible. And I suppose maybe not quite put that way, but there's some truth in that. The thing I want us to realize is baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit means through baptism, we are immersing people into the reality of the Trinity. And if that sounds wild, then we're close to getting it. We enter the fellowship of divine love. We are literally welcomed into the family of God. God pursued us when we were strangers. God pursued you when you were an outsider. God pursued me when I was a sinner. God pursued us when we were aliens and strangers and outsiders and sinners. He took the initiative and he came to us and he invited us into his family. So we were once on the outside looking in, but through Jesus, we've been welcomed into God's family, and now we sit at his table. Recall when Jesus came to earth, he was treated as an outsider. He was rejected as a stranger. When Jesus came to earth, 
he was not welcomed. He was very much unwelcomed. John 1 and verse 11 says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And throughout his life, Jesus noticed and loved the outsider and invited them in. He welcomed those whom society had unwelcomed. Lepers, women, criminals, tax collectors, prostitutes, the poor, the sick, the greedy, people of other races. See, Jesus ignored society's protocols and status markers. He welcomed the unwelcomed. And to just make sure we understand how extreme he went with this, he got in all kinds of trouble for it. And even as he was gasping for his last breath on the cross, he turned to one of the criminals hanging next to him, metaphorically opened his arms and welcomed him into his family. And this is the foundation for Christian hospitality. This is where we start to see this is where this value comes from. This is why the Bible drips with this. Because hospitality is at the heart of the redemption story. God has been hospitable to us. He's welcomed us into his family. And as we have received this hospitality, so we are to offer it to others. Let's talk about the first move of hospitality. It's Hebrews 13 and verse 1. The only verse from these three verses we're going to camp on today. Hebrews 13.1. The writer says... Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. I absolutely love that. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The first move of hospitality is to love others in the family of God. Brothers and sisters. The writer refers to Jesus' disciples. As the writer puts it, keep on loving one another as brothers and and sisters. It's a blatant statement about the connection we have with Jesus and to each other through Jesus. Brother and sister, which gives us the image of family. See, hospitality starts in the close circles of our lives and radiates out from there. Hospitality is harder in the close circle of our lives. Hospitality is easier when we aim it at strangers than it is when we aim it at those close to us. Because those close to us, we know their sins and they know ours. We know their weaknesses and they owe ours, know ours. It's always easier to go down to Target and show hospitality to a stranger outside than it is to go home and show hospitality to somebody who lives under the same roof with us. But for hospitality to be a value and not a tactic or a program, it must start in the close circles. And this is a pattern we find throughout the Bible, what we just talked about. The love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for each other can't stay there. So it radiates out toward others. Similarly, the love we are to have for our brothers and sisters in the faith radiates out toward others. But the first move of hospitality, the first relational space where hospitality is to happen is for the people of God to love one another, to be hospitable toward one another. Jesus says in John 13, beginning in verse 34, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, 
Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I'm struck by the word hospitality for two reasons. First, it's only a couple of letters different than hostility. Over the past several years, at least in my opinion, there's been a rise in the level of hostility in Christian people. Hostility toward each other. Hostility toward the church. Hostility toward the culture. And Jesus' words are important in these contentious days, and I'll let them sort of stand on their own. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's saying the most powerful indicator that God is present and doing something in our midst is our love for one another, or if you will, our hospitality toward one another. When we love one another, we're living on mission. When we love one another in the family of God, we're living on mission because our communal experience is demonstrating to the world that God is actually love. So this idea of loving one another, we could talk for weeks about this, but it has to do with our attitude toward one another. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we could go off in all sorts of directions on this, but for this series, we're kind of zeroing in on me as an individual, and us as a faith community. Loving one another has to do with our attitude toward one another. It has to do with the practical ways we help and serve one another. It has to do with being together, whether it be here or outside of here in each other's homes. This idea of connecting, this idea of relating, this idea of walking with, this idea of growing as a family. Keep on loving one another As brothers and sisters. When I read that, keep on, it's kind of right there. The implication, life in the family at times can be hard. And it requires perseverance. I thought of this recently when my oldest daughter, Abby, and I had a disagreement. She lives up in Portland. We talk and we text regularly. And one evening, our texting turned to religion and to faith and to some related issues, and we went back and forth, and I didn't take my own advice, advice I have said from this platform about 10,000 times. I actually, instead of what I typically say, I tried to have a real conversation about a meaningful topic through an electronic device. Dumb, bad, bad, and dumb. I I texted something in a tone At least I knew it was a tone. I didn't think she'd pick up on it. But I texted something in a tone I shouldn't have. And our relationship cracked a bit. And I can't stand it when there's a crack in a family relationship. Well, Abby gave me the silent treatment for a few days. How dare her? I'm her father. She gave me the silent treatment. It was one of these text, 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 nothing. Call, nothing. Finally, um, I don't want to talk right now. I need, I need a little bit of time. I start realizing she's not six anymore. I can't tell her, pick up the phone. I mean, I can tell her that, but that doesn't have anything to do with whether she's going to do it. But here's the thing. We're family, Abby and I. So we stay in it. And we stay at it. Or in the language of Hebrews 13, we keep on, even though it's hard, and even though we have differences And even though we see this thing differently, and even though we have things that we argue about, we work at love because love doesn't often come easy. 
And again, this is the first move of hospitality for the people of God, and I would say for a local church. Start with one another. So last thing I want to mention today is this idea of Sunday hospitality. The culture of Oak Hills extends way beyond these gatherings. It extends beyond our youth group gatherings on Sunday night. It extends beyond this annual gathering of the people on November 16th. The, the culture of Oak Hills extends way beyond not only these gatherings, it extends way beyond this campus. So when I say the culture of our church, uh, regardless of how I describe it today, I mean the culture of our church here and when we're not here. But for a moment, I want to talk about hospitality as it relates to the culture of Oak Hills here at these regular Sunday gatherings. So the second reason, I mentioned there were two, the second reason I'm struck by the word hospitality is that it contains the word hospital. And this, I think, points us to what hospitality looks like in the context of a local congregation. A hospital is a place for the hurting, the scared, the sick, the vulnerable, those who need help. The word hospitality, then, has built into it the idea of welcoming the hurting, the scared, the sick, the vulnerable, those who need help. And it is good, and it is accurate, I think, for us to think of these Sunday gatherings like we think of a hospital, a place for the hurting the scared, the sick, the vulnerable, those who need help. I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. There are plenty of times when I walk in here and I see you or I'm up here and I see you and I am the hurting. I am the scared. I am the sick. I am the vulnerable. I am the one who needs help. When I walk into Iron Horse Restaurant over on East Bidwell, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about me and my hunger and them satisfying it. When I walk into a hospital, I'm thinking differently. I'm oriented differently, even if I am not there for my own treatment. A hospital is different than a restaurant. I have a different posture when I'm in a hospital, because I know there are those around me who are hurting, scared, sick, vulnerable, and who need help. I wonder if you think about this regularly, that right now and every week, there are those around you who are hurting, scared, sick, vulnerable, and need help. And you know something? Every single one of us is a culture creator. What does that mean? It means, think doctors old, if you need to. Our presence creates a culture. Our body language creates a culture. Our words create a culture. Our eyes create a culture. Our posture creates a culture. Our silence creates a culture. Our absence creates a culture. We create a culture wherever we go, including... When we come in here. So we can come into this space as though this is Iron Horse. Thinking of me, 
thinking of my hunger and thinking of it getting satisfied. We can come in here like doctors old, hurried, stiff, driven by projects, not by people, fulfilling a task instead of tending to God and to each other's presence. Or we can come in here like this is a hospital, filled with the hurting, filled with the scared, filled with the sick, filled with the vulnerable, and filled with those who need help. And I think it's good, as I wrap this up, I think it's good to think about how we enter this space on a Sunday. And maybe to make this personal, instead of using we, let me use I. And you can put the I as it relates to yourself. Do I make room for others when I'm here? Do I give off any sort of vibe that I'm actually here for the sake of others? Do I notice others? Do I especially notice those who I've not seen before or who maybe look like they feel a bit awkward or look like they feel a bit out of place? Do I welcome others when I'm here? Do I ever risk love for the sake of another when I'm in this space? Do I breathe words of life to one of my brothers or sisters? Do I realize when I walk in that the Spirit of God is in our midst and He's on the move and believe it or not, He's doing exceedingly more than we could ask or imagine, not because this is somehow unique to everywhere else in the world, but because here there are two or three gathered, seeking to be gathered in his name. And when we gather in his name, Jesus is there in our midst, a community of divine love, powerful, transformative, and hopeful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your teaching, for your words, for your example. We're thankful that you are a God who was not content to have a little space where everybody was like you and everything was perfect and smooth. But rather, you wanted others to experience the beauty of your divine community. And so you, believe it or not, have invited us into it. And I pray that we will be a church and we will be a people that will continue to stretch the outer limits of what love and hospitality actually mean. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.